So this morning we, we're kicking off a new preaching series. And I've just realised I don't have a clicker here. Oh, okay, that's all right. So you can be my, my, yeah, excellent. So the series is called The Desert and the Parched Land. The Desert and the Parched Land. Now, please don't think, oh, that sounds a bit grim. That <laughs> sounds a bit, a bit miserable. Because actually what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at, looking at what God can do. The power of God. Every week we're going to be looking at a different, a different desert, a different place where, a time in scripture where we see someone who is at their wit's end. They're in the wilderness. They're struggling. It might be literally in the wilderness or there might be a, a, a metaphorical desert they find themselves in where they find that they are, they, they are without the, 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 the things they need to survive they're struggling, they're lonely, they're empty, they have no, no, no vision of, of what the future might look like, of where they're going. Because there's loads and loads of examples of that in Scripture. And as we go through life today, we will find often that we, are in, we, we go through those times when we feel like we are going through a desert, where we feel empty and we feel desperate. We start questioning, well, what's the point? What is the point of me? The great thing about Scripture is that whenever we see someone going through a time like that in the Bible, we see that God is very much working. God hasn't given up on those people. And we see, as we follow their story, that just at the point where they think that they're, they're almost finished, God is just filling them up and preparing them and using that time when they feel utterly empty, he's using that time to prepare them for something wonderful and amazing that is going to happen in their lives. But they've got no idea at that time. And so when we read those stories, when we study these times, we are reminded of the awesome power of God and the way that even when we feel at rock bottom and hopeless and empty, God is preparing us for something that lies ahead. And so there is hope. There is hope in our journey, and that hope comes from God. And so this morning, the first, the first um, sermon this morning is from chaos to creation. Now, let me just be absolutely straight on this. This is not a sermon about creation. Okay, don't expect a, a sermon about creation. But we're at the start of a new year. And many people try to recreate themselves. They think, new year, new you. What am I going to do? And we spoke last week a little bit about how sometimes people, people might join a gym or go on a diet or, or want to change jobs or, or set out to achieve something. And we have all these magnificent goals. And, and on, on New Year's Eve, we get all excited because this is going to be the year and it's going to be really special. And it's going to be great. And then we have a big party. And then the next morning, suddenly... Nothing's changed. All the old problems are there. All the old habits haven't been broken. All the old issues and, and doubts and problems are still there. Nothing has changed. The chaos of life is still there. But we have a God who isn't phased by chaos. In fact, we have a God who can do anything. Take a chaotic, horrific situation take an utter mess, and he can create something amazing. 
And so as this is the very first sermon of the new year, we, we are going to start in the beginning. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. As I say, this is not a sermon about creation. And there's a danger that when we start reading this account of creation, the biblical account of creation, we, we, we find ourselves entering one of two camps. We either immediately enter the camp of, of literalism, where we say, well, the Bible says seven days, God did this. There, that's what it says. Or we find ourselves in a camp of rationalism. Well, we know that it would have taken a lot longer. We know the earth is billions of years old and the processes take time, so it's just metaphorical. And before we know it, we're in a de debate about creation. And the problem with the debate about creation is that we can never know until we get the other side of, in, in, into the kingdom of God and say, Lord, how do you do that? And he says, oh, well... <laughs> We won't know. And so the debate goes on and on. And it's interesting and it can be really healthy and helpful, but it can also be very divisive. So this is not a sermon about creation. Instead, instead, this is a sermon about something much better for us. This is a sermon about what we can learn about how God loves us and our relationship with God. And so to begin with, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It was a mess. There was no order. There was nothing there. There was nothing created, nothing done. The waters were there. The, the, the one thing that we need to, to sustain us, that we must have on a regular basis, water is sort of the sustainer of life. If water is discovered on, on another planet or something, people get all excited because, hey, water equals life. Well, water was there. The Spirit of God was hovering over. He'd already put that in place. But nothing else was there. God could have just gone, done. Creation. There it is. But he doesn't. He goes through this series of instructions. First of all, he says, let there be light. Then he says, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And then he says, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place and let dry ground appear. You see, let this happen, let this happen, let this happen. God's giving permission. He's allowing these things to happen. But he's also not allowing other things to happen. When he says, let there be light, he could have done the whole thing in one go. The whole creation process could have just happened in that one instance. But no, he did it gradually, piece by piece. The instructions continue. Let, there be, let the water team with living creatures... Let the birds fly above the earth. Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Then eventually, let us make mankind in our image. 
You see, God gives permission. Let there be this, let there be this, let there be this. But within that, within that creative process, there are certain things that God doesn't allow to happen. He creates the the vegetation and the livestock, but we're not told that he put the exact number of leaves on the tree. Instead, he made the tree, and then he stood back and watched it, watched the process continue. God gives permission for creation to happen. But he also puts limitations on what he does. Because he has to. He allows a creative process to happen. You see, God is the author of creation. We have said this, we've sung this many times, the author of creation. We see that as we look at Genesis. As God says, let there, let there, let there. He's writing the whole creation narrative. He's designing the earth. He is undoubtedly the author of creation. He has absolute authority. Absolute authority over creation. He can change and do anything he likes in creation. That's still true today, just as it was right at the beginning. So God is the author of creation. He has authority over creation. But... He is not an authoritarian. If you're not sure what that means, authoritarianism, I've got a definition. It is the enforcement or advocacy of strict obedience to authority at the expense of personal freedom. The enforcement or advocacy of strict obedience to authority at the expense of personal freedom. We have personal freedom. God has given us the freedom to explore and to enjoy creation. In the, from the, the mess of creation, he created what we see around us. He created this world. But he also said, I'm going to limit what I do here. Now, we can't put limitations on God. God has no limits, but God, of course, can put limits on himself. We can't put God in a box, but God can, because God can do whatever he wills. In fact, God did put himself in a box, didn't he? Quite literally, the Ark of the Covenant. For generation after generation after generation in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant had a lid that was made of solid gold and it was called the mercy seat. And that mercy seat was the dwelling place of the Spirit of God himself. And only the high priest of all Israel was allowed to enter into that presence. And even then only once a year and even then only after a series of very strict cleansing rituals and ceremonial rites that prepared him for it. And he had to be ceremonially clean in order to enter that place. God limited himself. God also limited himself when he came down in the form of a tiny baby. He limited himself to a manger. So we... We cannot, we do not have the right, the authority, the power to say, well, God can't do this. God can do anything he wills. But God himself in the creation process, in the chaos and the mess, rather than saying, bang, everything's done, 
Everything from, from creation up to the reconciliation, we, 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 we're done. Time, time, we don't have to spend all that time going through the process of, of putting everything right. It's just done. But that would take us out of the equation, and God doesn't want to do that because he loves us. And he's created us to, to one day be with him in, in uni, union, to dwell in his presence, in his kingdom. We are part of this creative process and God's given us the freedom to choose what we do in a, as our part of that creative process. As a, as a teenager, um, like many people do, I went through my sort of pretentious plonker phase, as I like to call it. And um, on my wall, I had this. If you'll struggle to believe this, but he was an artist. And he was an American artist. Um, I think he was mainly... Um, doing his stuff in the 1950s, and this was, um, this was a type of picture that he produced. And he did it by taking a, a massive canvas, and sometimes these canvases were, they were, they were huge. And he'd have pots of paint and big paintbrushes like you might paint your house with. And he'd just scoop up a load of paint onto the brush, and then he'd just drip it all over, and he'd, he'd, he'd just flick it everywhere, and it'd be a right mess, and his studio was, was just chaos. But he'd, he'd put a, a certain colour on, and then he'd let that dry, and he'd grab a different, different colour, and then he'd do the same again, and over time, as he did different colours and different angles, and different arcs and everything, so this, these works of art were created. And some people like it, some people don't. Fair enough, that's, that's true of a lot of art. But at the end of it, he had created something which, which he was the artist, his signature went on the bottom. It was his work, and he sold it for millions of dollars. I mean, it does make you think, come on, I might grab a, grab a canvas and, and have a go myself, it can't be that difficult, surely. And people pay loads of money for this sort of stuff. But, but you see, his creative process, he was the creator. There is no question. No one else picked up a brush. No one else um, uh, got involved in it. He was the creator. And yet, and yet, he could never replicate the same piece of art twice. He could never take that and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do another one. I'll do a, a, a copy. It's impossible. Because in the creation process, as he was taking the brushes, he, he, he had a vision, he knew what he wanted it um, more or less to look like, he knew the, the colours and the layering and the process that he wanted to put in there, and at the end of it, he didn't know what the creation was going to look like in detail, but he knew what had gone into it, he knew the colours, he knew the layering, he knew the, the process and the technique. This piece is called Convergence. Yeah, I don't know either. But as a 15-year-old, I felt quite clever having that on my wall. My brother actually used to often walk into my bedroom when I wasn't there and uh, take it off the wall and turn it upside down and hang it back on there just to see how long it would take me to notice that this artwork was upside down. But you see the relationship between creator and creation. Sometimes we have to stop and think, what's God's relationship as the creator with his creation? You see, there was, there was freedom in, in Pollock just, just doing stuff, just creating. He was, he was creating, but it might not be in the way that we would understand it. But once he'd finished, he'd hold it up and say, this is the product of my work. This is the end product. 
We had some friends of ours a few years ago, we went round to their house and they had a very small child who just started school. And we knocked on the door and went in. And uh, it was all good to see them. And they said, oh, please, when you go into the kitchen, do not look at the fridge door. Don't look at the fridge door. I thought, what, what are you talking about? I thought, someone punched it? Is, that, you know, is it falling off the hinges? What? Anyway, we walked in and... and um, my, my dear wife, being very um, respectful and obedient, she walked in, the fridge was there, she just turned her back on the fridge door, thought that's what we've been asked to do. I thought, if, if, you, uh, if I come around to your house and you say, whatever you do, don't look at this, I'm looking at it. I want to know, I want to know why. So I walk in and I, where's the fridge? Right, there's the fridge, what, what is it? And I'm standing there and, and uh, the guy came over to me and he, he said, oh no, if you, I knew you'd do that, have you seen it? And I looked and I said, no. And he said, look again. So I stood there and a minute went by and I suddenly saw it. And I went, ah, and he said, yeah. You see, what it was, their child had just started school, so four or five years old, and um, uh, this was just before Christmas, so they'd been there for a few months and had their first spelling test. And this spelling test was on the fridge door because the child had got nine out of ten and there was a star sticker on there. Great, nine out of ten, fantastic. but the one word that had been that was wrong was an incredibly rude, offensive word. It was so rude, I'm not even going to tell you the word that she was supposed to have spelt in case you work it out, and I wouldn't want to offend your delicate nature. And I looked at it, and I said, I can't believe you've got that in your fridge door. And he said, I know, but, but she was so proud. You see, as parents, the, 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 the creators of this, of this child, they've looked and they've, 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 they've seen the mistake and they've thought, <gasps> they've thought, <gasps> that's better. They haven't taken it down. They haven't said, whoa, 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 we want to we kind of uncreate that bit. That's, that's, that's awful. They've just warned people. They've just said, look, we've, look what she's done. She's achieved nine out of ten. Isn't that fantastic? But, but it's not quite perfect and there is actually quite a big imperfection in there. You see, God looks at his creation and he, he wants to say, look, look, at, look at all these people, look at what they've done, look at the, the love, the, the charity, the goodness, the kindness, look at the, the wonderful things, but, but there, are, there, are, there are faults in there. There are errors in there. But I'm not going to condemn it and destroy it and rip it up and get rid of it. Instead, I'm going to look at the faults and I'm going to focus on the goodness because I believe that that... That is the most important thing, the goodness. But can you imagine what happens if someone walks into that kitchen and looks at that fridge door and takes offence and suddenly says, I can't believe your child knows that word. And they say, well, we didn't teach it. Well, where did they get it from then? That's appalling. You should not have that on your fridge door. Well, that's my child's creation. She made that. She's proud of it. She shouldn't be. That's awful. Well, how dare you say that? And before you know it, you've got friends arguing. You've got, you've got division. You've got, you've got um, argue, arguments taking place. You've got walls being built, barriers being erected. And before you know it, you've got a, a world where Cain goes and kills Abel. And it all goes wrong. And we find ourselves in a wilderness and we're so far away from God that the reconciliation process is going to take a long, long time. And unfortunately, that is the world in which we live. God created us for good. There was a time, we don't often spot it, but there was a time when God had created the Garden of Eden. 
And he'd put Adam in there and he'd put Eve in there. And there was a time when it was all working perfectly before the fall. We don't know how long that time was. But what we do know is that as soon as the fall took place, as soon as there was disobedience, as, there was, as soon as there was rebellion, then suddenly, to protect the perfection of his creation, he had to take man out and say, we need to put this right. And unfortunately, that reconciliation process is still going on. We know it's going to be okay. We've read, we've read the Bible, we've read Revelation, we know it's going to be okay in the end. But we live in a world where so many people find themselves in a desert. It might be a desert of despair. I've put a, a list of things up there and some of those you might identify with, some of those you might think, well, yeah, that's me right now, right here. That's where I am. Or you might know someone who, who is experiencing those things. But hopefully not. Hopefully that won't be the case. Hopefully you're not finding yourselves in the midst of those things right now. But we live in a world that is full of these, these negative feelings, these negative states. People who are being hurt and broken by these things. And this is why the world needs the church. This is why I believe so firmly in the local church. Because the church is, is such an important institution. I think it was A.C. Grayling, who is a prominent atheist, really, really anti the Christian faith, who said in an article a few years ago, if you take church out of society, society collapses. Because the church is so important. 8,000 food banks across the country run out of churches. The church is the biggest employer of youth workers in the country. There is so much good work that comes from the local church and so much of it is either taken for granted or unseen. But the church is working so hard because at the moment the country is on its knees. We've seen from the latest census that, that as a country we are drifting further and further away from God. Well, how's that going? We've got a, a, a moral vacuum. But nature doesn't allow a vacuum. Nature does not allow a vacuum. And God created nature. And God created the church to fill that vacuum. To step in there and fill itself with people who say, I want to follow Jesus. And I don't just want to follow him, but I want to call others to follow me following him. I want to set the example. I want to be the, the Jesus that people see. And that's a big responsibility. But... When we find ourselves or when others find themselves in the desert of these things. What do we remember at Christmas? His name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. If we personally are going through these things, God sent Emmanuel. God with us. If people we know are going through these things, God with us. Maybe that's, maybe that's you. Maybe you are going to be God as, to someone as they go through something. Maybe you're going to be the one who, who lifts them up, who encourages them, who, whose spirit just enriches them and nourishes them on a daily basis. 
Maybe you're going to be the one who says to someone, look, I know everything seems chaotic. I know that life feels like a mess. I know that you're wandering aimlessly in a desert at the moment, but I believe it will be okay. It will be okay. Because I believe, I believe in my God. And I believe that my God has a plan for you just as much as he does me. And I believe you're going to be okay. Sometimes just saying those words to someone can lift them out of, of the desolate state they find themselves in. Or maybe it's just the way we conduct ourselves. It might not be an individual, but maybe if we're, we're in the office or at a social club or at a family gathering or talking to neighbours, if we're the ones that, that, that exude the Christ-like values that we, that we read about in Scripture, then we become God with them. Ambassadors for God, sharing his good news. You see... It's been said before, the world at its worst needs the church at its best. We are entering difficult times. There's no hiding that. There's a lot of fear out in the world. There is a lot of worry, a lot of anxiety. A lot of people struggling with a whole lot of things. But we have something unique. We have something that you can't order off Amazon. You can't simply ask for a, a quick fix and life sorted. But we have a saviour who says, I will walk with you and I will share your burden and I will take you out of the desert and I will build you up and I will use you. I will use you if you follow me. So as we begin this new series, as we begin this new year, Let's recommit ourselves to Jesus. Let's remember that God has created us, but within that, that creation, he has given us the freedom to live life as we wish. And he sent Jesus into the world to say, follow me, come with me. Let me be a part of your journey, your life. And we can reject that or we can accept that. And if we accept it, if we accept Jesus, it will be the best decision that we've ever made. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, I've done that, I've made that decision, I am following Jesus, then great. Great. But be prepared. When Amy spoke earlier about the, the frustration she's felt with God, I love that honesty. Because we all go through those times. We are all susceptible to having those moments where we just feel swallowed up by anger and frustration with God. And God knows that. But it's still true. In a desert of frustration, in a desert of bitterness, in a desert of emptiness, God is with us. And he's with us through his Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost. the spirit that Jesus had promised on the night of that first communion. I'm going to pray and then we're going to share communion together as a fellowship. Father God, you are the author of creation. 
You can do anything you like, any way you like, at any time you like. Father, you don't need us, but you love us. You created us. You know everything about us. You know our, our past, you know our present, and you know our future. You know the future that you want us to follow. You give us freedom within creation. Father, I pray if there's anybody here today who doesn't know you as their personal father and saviour, then, Lord, I pray that you will reach into their heart. I pray that you will bring them close to you. I pray you'll encourage them to to investigate Jesus. And Father, for those people who have had a relationship with you for, for many years, maybe all their lives, who have known you for that long, Father, I pray that you will nourish them, equip them, build them up to go out into the world representing you. To go out into the world and to encourage those that they meet. To support and show love and grace. Father, as we prepare ourselves to share communion together, we're reminded that this is your gift to us. That this is your gift that, that Jesus revealed the night he was betrayed, the day before he was crucified. He wanted his people to remember him. So Father, we pray that as we share these elements you will bless them to our bodies. Lord, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that that Jesus was a key part of your creation. We thank you that because of Jesus, we we can cry out to you. We can each call out to you personally as part of the, the priesthood of all believers those who believe in you can, can call you Father. We don't have to go through the, the, the high priest. We don't have to observe the, the cleansing rituals and the ceremonial rites that, that took place in the Old Testament. Father, instead we come to you and we ask you to cleanse us. We say, Father, forgive me for my sin. And so, Lord, right now, We do that as a church family. We say, Father God, forgive us for our sin. And Father, we thank you for the bread and the wine of communion. We thank you for the body and the blood of Jesus. We thank you for his presence for his love, for his mercy, and for his grace. And in his name we say together, Amen.
If you've got a communion pod, please feel free to remove the lid. Communion is the gift that we were given to remind us of what Jesus did for us. You see, the imperfections in creation are not acceptable to God because the kingdom of God is a place of perfection, a place of absolute purity. Take a gallon of water and put a single drop of poison in it. You can't drink it. The whole gallon is ruined, has to be disposed of. In the same way, sin cannot be allowed into heaven because the purity of heaven is lost. And so God sent his son into the world, a perfect individual, the only person in history who was perfect in the eyes of God, Jesus. And Jesus went to the cross, and Jesus died on the cross. To take away our sin. And so through Jesus, we one day will be made perfect and able to enter the presence of our Heavenly Father. And communion is a reminder of that. And if you're sitting there thinking, I don't really get that, then please let communion pass you by, but come and talk to me afterwards. Because I'd love to, I'd love to share more. I'd love to talk more about what Jesus can do for you. But for those of us who've made that decision to follow Jesus, what we're doing is in line with Jesus' instruction to us. We read in Matthew's Gospel that the disciples on the evening of the Last Supper were in the presence of Jesus. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And so we have a representation of the body of Jesus. And we follow obediently his command. So let's eat together.
Then he took a cup. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many and for the forgiveness of sins. Without Jesus, without the cross, we would still be embroiled in the mess of creation. But because of Jesus, we have a very clear route back to the original design of our creator. So let's drink together. Father God, thank you for what we have just shared together. Thank you for your love and thank you for your blessing upon us. And thank you that when we have faith in you, when we turn to you, when we follow you, we realize that in the midst of confusion, what sometimes feels like a very messy world, there is one who has total authority over all. Amen. Amen. We're going to close with our final song of worship this morning.
Please do join us for tea and coffee after the service. But let's, let's just close in prayer. Lord God, it's such a privilege to be able to come and to freely and to openly worship you. And Father, we pray that as we share together after the service, as we go to our homes or to our families or to our places of work or wherever else we might be going, Father, as we enter into the week tomorrow morning and and follow whatever path lies before us this week, the conversations, the challenges that we might face, Lord God, may we go knowing with absolute confidence that you have authority over all, that you are in control. And even when we can't quite see what's happening and why things are happening in the way they are, Lord, may we have faith in you. A faith that lives, a faith that is evident to all that we meet, a faith that sustains us and that inspires others to come and know you, the one, the true, the living God. Bless us, Lord, as we do your work this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.